I want to take a minute to tell everyone about the app that helps make this show possible. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Most importantly, it's free. I always got to lead with that. If you're new to podcasting and feel a little intimidated by the whole process, Anchor doesn't charge you a dime to set up an account, so it's a great app to use while you get your feet wet. You also don't have to be an audio engineer to produce your own show. Anchor has creation tools that allow you to record and edit your own podcast right from your own phone, tablet, or computer. You can do it anywhere. You can do it in your bedroom, fit into your closet if you can, go into a garage. You don't always have to have a fancy studio to uh, make a podcast happen. You really just need something you're passionate about and a chance to click record. Also, Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Music, Spreaker, Overcast, and many other platforms. You don't have to go log into each account and submit an RSS feed. Anchor takes care of that for you. Not only is Anchor free, but you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've been doing this show for 10 months and I've already been able to quit full time at my day job and just work part time. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one easy to use place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Remember, that's Anchor, 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 like from a boat. Hello and welcome everyone to episode 19 of Cake and Conversation. It's uh, the first episode since June. Uh, thanks for pressing play. I'm your host, as always, Jay Vite, and I'm super excited to be back producing new episodes for everyone. If you follow along with me on social media, you know I've put more focus lately into doing my Astro Brat podcast and haven't been getting as many Cake and Conversation episodes out as I'd like. But I'm back in the zone, and the plan is to keep the content coming. That's what it's always about, no matter where this show takes me or you know, day-to-day life, dealing with all of that. Anytime I talk to other creators, one thing that always gets mentioned is putting content out. Don't worry about what you've done before, what you haven't done. Don't worry about what you're behind on, what you could have done, missed opportunities. Just keep putting new content out because that's what you have control over. If this is your first time checking out my show, I appreciate you giving me a shot. It's pretty obvious now the podcast market is oversaturated and there's plenty, it's a good thing, there's plenty of quality content out there to listen to. So you giving me and my guests some of your valuable free time, it it means a lot to me. I'm very genuine when I say that. I use Cake and Conversation to give creators an extra platform to express themselves. That's the bare bones of it. Selfishly, I've always been into psychology and how the brain works. And because I consider myself to be very creative, I tend to gravitate towards other creative-minded people. I've also learned that when someone takes a bite of their favorite dessert, they tend to let their guard down and open up. And I love having a chance to hear their story. 
Hopefully by the end of the conversation, I've learned something new and all of my listeners have learned something new or interesting or unique about a person, something they can relate to. There's been a lot going on behind the scenes with regards to, I mean, I've mentioned it now, getting signed to a broadcast company. So I was in sort of a limbo for a a month or two while waiting out some of the details to get squared away, trying to figure out how that's all going to work moving forward. I'll be working on a different platform as well. So just trying to learn the ins and outs of that. It's a new experience for me. I've also been working on putting together a live show. It's an idea I've had since even before the COVID stuff happened. I've always wanted to put on a live show, have some two or three guests and be able to sell tickets to it. And there's a lot more that goes into it than that, you know, but I want it to be able to be an event. And anyone out there who's tried to produce a live event of any kind knows how monumental of a task it is, especially without any kind of like corporate backing or big corporate sponsors. You know, you're doing it grassroots style. It's a little harder. I also have a website, but it's, I finally went out and bought a domain name and I'm, I'm learning WordPress. So the website's still under construction because I want to build it myself. I, I've heard from people, hey, reach out here, pay this amount, they'll do your website, blah, 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 blah. I just, I feel the need now as a creator, I want to learn something new between doing a website, trying a YouTube channel and starting to do videos and recording visually. It's all new to me, but I want to learn that part. Honestly, that's the hardest part of trying to build something from the ground up. All the creative people out there know, you know, you like, there's there's a painter out there that likes doing the sketching and the drawing, but they're probably not a fan of the social media and interacting and having to put themselves out there. That's what a lot of us struggle with. There's always so much to do, so many tasks to be juggled. And sometimes I have to remember to ask for help and to reach out to people and realize that's okay. It's not a a bad thing. It's not a weakness. You know, you're trying to build something and you have these big plans and ideas for it. You're gonna need help. You're not gonna be able to do it all on your own. So that's what I've been dealing with a lot the last couple months uh, between a, a day job change and trying to keep this show up and running and a whole brand, a whole creative brand, trying to get that started. It's a lot of work, but I enjoy doing it. And at the end of the day, that's what matters. My guest for you all today has, he's a cool guy. He's hung out with Bob Marley. He's got to see the band Kiss put in work before they were ever a worldwide touring band. Amongst other people, he was sneaking into the back door of the world famous Apollo Theater in New York when he was just 13 years old. If I had to describe Ed, I'd say he's a rambling man, a rolling stone, a free spirit. I had a whole outline and notes for the show, but once we really sat down and we started talking baseball and poker, the whole script sort of changed. Everything I had planned kind of changed. Ed is a man with an original story, and I see a lot of myself in him, actually. I kind of gravitated towards him once he opened up to me. The allure of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, untraditional non-conformist wanting to take the road less traveled he has an artist soul and 
For the last several years, he's been expressing himself by way of crafting cocktails. I can teach a first grader how to pour a proper rum and coke, although I don't recommend or condone such actions. However, to try and build a truly craft cocktail, to make it complex with bold flavors that take your palate on a unique journey, it's something that requires a high level of creative ability. When somebody says, oh, you're a bartender, uh, where's the art in that? You know, sometimes bartenders don't even realize themselves that they're creating art. It's something that's drawn me to, you know, you've heard me mention before Bash Williams, the godfather of the podcast. He's a craft cocktail. He's an artist. He builds it. You know, he doesn't just make a rum and coke, like I was saying. There's reason and intent behind it, behind Bash's actions or Ed's actions. They have an idea behind it. Ed was really just born with that creative ability. He's currently representing the city of Houston, his long adopted hometown, in the Power of the Palette virtual cocktail competition sponsored by Maker's Mark. He's got to outshine 15 other competitors in order to take home first place. And because I'm from Houston and this show is about helping put a spotlight on local creators, I knew he'd be a perfect person to have on as a guest so we can help spread the word. We want to get him as many votes as possible. You have until August 31st to vote. So hopefully you're listening to this episode before August 31st and you can vote as much as you want. I timed myself and it takes roughly nine seconds to cast a vote. So every once in a while, I remind myself, I've been doing it the last week, go vote. And when I do vote, I vote three or four times. You know, what's a minute when you can doing something to help promote, you know, the city. If you're from Houston and listening to this, you know, it's repping Houston. Or if you're an artist and you're not from Houston or you're a creative person, you appreciate art creative-minded people say you're not from Houston but you also don't have a dog in the fight hey come support this guy because maybe you support me you know support the guest and it doesn't take long again you can vote as much as you want his drink is titled the bun b someone and is inspired by Houston's own rap icon bun b and also the b someone mural located above i-45 south on the train bridge. You can see it heading into Houston towards downtown. It's made with Maker's Mark bourbon and has the flavor profile of a cinnamon bun, a nice buttery cinnamon bun. Ed uses complex flavor and multiple layers to pay homage to Bun B's multifaceted career and is bold and original with the ingredients and makeup, similar to the fabric that makes up Houston's culture. If you're a true follower of Cake and Conversation, you recognize the name Ed Warner. He was one of the featured guests from my special edition episode, The Traveling Cocktail Presents a Pop-Up Art Event. So, if this is your first time listener, head back into the catalog and look up The Traveling Cocktail Presents episode. It's actually a two-part episode where I interview a couple of different guests at a creative art event I was luckily enough luckily enough to be able to be featured at. But yeah, I met Ed there and we've stayed in touch since then. When he told me he was in this competition, again, I had to I had to tell him, hey, I'm starting my show back up. I want you to be the first guest. 
I was able to talk to him for five minutes then when we originally met, but when I sat down with him recently, I have over an hour and a half of conversation with Ed. He was adamant on traveling to me. Normally, I like to meet up with my guest in a place that's comfortable to them, but he was very, very adamant about coming to me. So I made sure to pick up some beef fajitas to compensate him for his trip. He also let me pick the dessert, and normally I insist that the guest makes the choice, but I wanted to use this as an opportunity to bring business to a local bakery. So I reached out to a friend of the show, Daniela Barrera, and while normally she always donates to the show, I wanted to support the local bakery she works at. So my brother and I drove over to Cravem Cupcakes, located in downtown, kind of the heart of Lake Jackson. Texas if you're from around the Brazoria County area. I chose Sweeties style cupcakes because I like the subtle almond flavor from the Sweeties cookies recipes that you can find online. Just Google Sweeties cookies. Uh, It's really easy to make if you just want to bake some cookies at your house. It has a nice almond extract flavor going on. And I was down to see what the cupcake version had in store. So As I mentioned, this convo goes longer than any show I've published before, but because of the vibe and my great chemistry with Ed, we were able able to cover a lot of ground before I decided I wanted to wrap it up. The audio is a little off because I'm a jackass and forgot to change the settings on my microphone from solo to interview, but it's fine and I'm no audio engineer, so what you see is what you get. Like right now, uh, my settings on inter- uh, it's on solo, so the microphone mainly picks up my voice directly in front of it. When I meet up with a guest, I switch it to interview, so both sides of the microphone record well. I forgot to switch that for Ed, so even though he's directly in front of me in my kitchen, it almost sounds like maybe he's on the phone or you kind of hear an echo from the room. I had a friend offer to help me edit it and help the sound levels out, but at the same time, again. For now, with Cake and Conversation, I like the raw aspect of it. I like the in the moment, this is how we're doing it. It can go anywhere. It's authentic. I like it to be no filter. I don't want it to be fake. So there's no reshoots around here. We go live to tape at Cake and Conversation. I won't keep you waiting anymore though. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with traveling celebrity bartender, Ed Warner. Stealing batting signs. Could they thoroughly okay with you throwing a baseball at 100 miles to someone's head? Yeah. Hypocrite. Yeah. The whole baseball, Major League Baseball is just stupid. Oh, they are. One thing with that, I don't like the way they handle just starting the season. Think about July 4th. America's holiday. No other sports are going on. If they could have had their head out of their ass early on, they could have got the season started sooner. And think about the goodwill. Yeah, everybody's celebrating. They're dying to watch. Perfect day. You know, they're dying to watch anything. And let's say you just because they need viewership more than anything. People aren't really watching. It's a slow game. Like I'm a big baseball nerd, and I understand it's hard to get casual viewers. And what base? Okay, you're good. 
Um, what they could have did if they just retained, say you got a bunch of casual viewers watching on July 4th that would have never watched baseball. If yeah. they could have kept just 10% of those fans that maybe fell in love with one player or something, you know, that would have been good for the game. Yeah, but to, to get a new fan. Yeah, because that's, that's what they're lacking. convert a basketball fan to baseball. There's nothing else going on. Nothing else going on. And then NBA handled it perfect by yeah. starting in Orlando, doing the bubble, they having talking, no positive tests. They were talking about doing a bubble for college basketball. Well, if you do that, then you're definitely hypocritical. Because what are you going to do? You're going to put a school in the bubble? Yeah. You know, these guys are going to still go to class? Or are you just going to play basketball? And just openly admit that we're yeah. here for sports. Yeah. And then still Which not they pay. should do anyway. Right, because they need to pay the people. But that is what it is. No, why would they do something stupid like that? <laughs> right, cost themselves money, unfortunately. Uh, so I got you here today specifically because uh, we're you're in a, a competition. Yes. And we're I know you're representing Houston in the West region. Right. And it's for Maker's Mark. For Maker's Mark. All right. So tell me Maker's, about that. Okay, so um, the competition is organized by the people that organize black restaurant weeks and over the past couple of years they started in houston and then they started adding cities on so actually it's, it's ironic because the, my the first competition i ever competed in was with the power of the palette that's their franchise for their they, it's uh the power of the palette is a chef and bartending competition so um, so I've been doing that four years, five years. I think I missed one. So yeah, about five years. And uh, so I'm, I'm close to the people who own the franchise uh, from, they also are one of, if not the only, one of the few wine, uh, African-American wine distributors in the country. The, co the company's called Brandwar. And Warren Luckett, is uh, the CEO of uh, the CEO of the company, and we've uh, talked ad nauseum about the possibility of doing this thing nationally. And this was pre-COVID. Well, when I won um, the event in Atlanta last year, and when I came back, I told them that like this year. I was going to get in my car, drive to every black restaurant we uh, enter the power to ballot and win it. Said, I'm going to make myself the national champ. <laughs> well, COVID came along and he actually had, had canceled all of the competitions. He was still going to go through with, uh, with the restaurant we, but he had canceled the, the, uh, the bartending competition aspect of it. And uh, then evidently he partnered with Maker's Mark and they came up with this virtual, uh, virtual concept, which it, uh, there's 16 cities and um, they wanted to rep the city. Well, one of the things that's significant about this is as far as I know, there's never been a national competition that targeted uh, African-American mixologists. Now, I know that in the grand scheme of things, I know I would rather that this not be as special or as historic as it is, that, you know, not sounding cliche, 
but I would much rather be the best bartender in America right. than the best African-American bartender in America, but baby steps. Baby steps. We yeah. got to let people know we're here. And in this industry, you know, I'm looked at as almost an anomaly that, you know, I, me and Bash, that we do what we do and we're black. All right. It's like we're not supposed to have that knowledge. And like I was talking or it was uh, or I was watching one of the other brackets and I think it was Miami where they said every every African-American mixologist, we, they know everybody because it's such a small community. I mean, there's a ton of African-American bartenders, but there's some bartenders, if I talked about that drink, be like I was talking Mandarin. Right. All right. So um, the, the power to palate, this, this competition has done, has done a lot of things. It's doing a lot of things. I don't even know if some of the other competitors understand what's going on. But one of the things I would like to see come out of this, and I've been in touch with all my co-competitors, is that I'm going to keep my plan that when COVID comes out, I don't intend to go behind the bar. I'm going to just go barnstorming. I'm going to get in my car and do pop-ups and collaborations around the country. Well, now I have 15 other bartenders to work with. Right. You know, so I'm naturally going to use that as my base. And hopefully, um, with my music background, I'm going to try to get an agent to actually represent me. To where they're, where they're, where they're getting me gigs, they say, hey, you know, I know you're in South Carolina. You know, can you go up into Maryland or Virginia or whatever? Right. You know, I got five more dates for you. So you got, you know, you got Richmond, Virginia, Newport Beach, and then you're going into Maryland. You know, something like that to where I can just stay on the road and, uh, you know, just make my money like I was a bank. Just that I'm, you know, a bartender. Touring. Yeah, tour. Yeah, definitely a tour. Um, before COVID, I had planned to do a tour of Europe. I had a couple of bartenders that I met at Tales of the Cocktail that invited me to do some dates in London, some, some shifts in London. But why go over there for, you know, it ain't like going to Dallas. <laughs> so why go over there to just do two dates where maybe I could expand? And I started thinking, who I know in Europe? And, you know, so luckily COVID has done this. So next spring, I want to be heading across the water. And, you know, I got people in London. I've heard people in uh, Ireland, no, Scotland. Um, I got people in uh, France. And so maybe between just networking with them, I could maybe do Barcelona, uh, you know, Dublin, um, Paris, and then maybe Paris, and if my girl can pull it off and let me do something in Monte Carlo. Okay. Because that's just one of my fantasies. Your bucket list spots? Well, actually, my bucket list for Monte Carlo is to go there and play poker. Okay. You're a, yeah. you're a poker player, too? Oh, yeah, man. That's so, what I do. Baseball nerd and no limit hold them. You're literally, like, I'm, it's a mirror of myself. It's what I do is uh, play cards well, and grow yeah, up playing poker. I mean, and 
the no the playing poker. I'm wondering cats that don't do nothing halfway. Oh. So when I started playing poker, I played in the World Series main event the second year I, I learned how to play. Jeez, you like just I dove went, in. Yeah, just dive I in went, head first. I went to uh I went to Vegas and I took a boot camp. Uh three days of like stupid intense training with some of the best poker players in the world. Yeah. Got to play with Phil Hellmuth, Joe Hesham, uh, Greg Raymer, yeah. bunch of bunch of internet uh phenoms. So- I got to I got to play with Annette Osterbach oh, before she could legally play in a casino. casino. She's a genius. It was a, it was a private tournament. So she, I actually played at her table. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, if I'm not, if I'm not behind a like poker is how I decompress. Yeah. You know, that's I, me at the end of the night playing on the phone. I got a cat. I got a cash game. You could play online, yeah. you know, I um I've been playing, you know. Well, I played a lot of underground poker, and a couple of the places I played opened up rooms. So like I now play a lot at um, the Empire at Empire on Westheimer, and um, have you tried Lions Den yet? No, and I don't think they're open back up yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, so I've done mint poker. John Williamson, uh, who is a an established pro, he opened up a spot on Bel Air called Champions. Okay, yep. And when you walk in there, you think you're in Vegas. You know, he's got the atmosphere set up. Got the atmosphere, chandeliers, um, a high stakes room, a Vietnamese poker room, um, a full bar in the middle of, you know, we've been teasing that I go in there one day and, and sling for him. I think I'm going to actually, as I get closer to my competition, I'm going to do a video in both places because I'm repping my city and part of my city's playing cards. Playing poker. You know? Yeah, see, I didn't even know about this going into this conversation. And I'm huge into poker. It's one of the bigger parts of my life. So yeah. we're going to have to catch some games sometimes for but, sure. I mean, I'm going to yeah, do some 2-5, no limit, some 1-3. I'm down. I, I play no limit. I stay away from Omaha. Me too. It's a gambler's game. Omaha's yeah, gambling okay. to me. Yeah. When I started playing, man, I started playing with with a ex girlfriend of mine, and it was really interesting because this dude had bugged me for a year. Are we on? Yeah, well, we've been on. Oh, oh yeah, you're good. Uh, Going for with a year about he says to me, Ed, you know, you think like a poker player. I said, I don't play cards, <laughs> and and I mean like in college. Like people be trying to get a spades game going. I'm in the room at the table. They'll get on the phone and call somebody. Yeah. You know, because they knew I wasn't. It was, I was one of the things I couldn't hold. You were a mark. Like it was like, how do you do this again? How do you do this again? I couldn't hold it. But when I played poker for the first time, it was like someone came up behind me and just hit me in the neck with some heroin. You know, mm-hmm. I was just hooked. hooked. And you like the psychology behind it. I, yeah, I like, I like, I like the thinking. And the, you know, I like the like I tell people that don't play. I said poker is like playing chess with cards. Uh, and uh, excuse me a second. Yeah, you're good. 
And um, so we played one of these bar leagues. The girl won the tournament, and I we both made the final table. And the girl, no, she didn't win. She came in second, but it was the first time she'd ever played poker. Hmm. But a lot of I, I've always thought that she was a savant, that she always knew how to play, and then that game just opened the door because she went on to play professionally. All right, and she's if you ever decide lose your mind, one of them moments of insanity that you say, I'm going to play some Omaha, and this girl is sitting at the table, take your ass up and leave. leave. She's going to take all your money. Yeah. Um, I was in Vegas. We had gone down. I mean, right in New Orleans, we had gone down to a circuit event. And in between... Harris. Yeah. In between what we were doing, she decided she'd get on an Omaha table. <laughs> Probably so, two in know, the morning, I'm sure. So I'm... <laughs> I'm standing watching, trying not to look like I know her. And she's just busting these dudes up. I mean, like, it was like LeBron James playing junior high school basketball players. And then, you know, it got to the point where they were talking about her like she wasn't at the table. <laughs> like, man, I hate playing with women. You know, these women are so lucky. Blah, 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 blah. She ain't saying shit. She's already just stacking chips. And then this dude just kept raking. He'd like go go to the cage or call, get more chips. And next thing you know, he gives them to her. He starts, then he started approaching being disrespectful. That's why I said, look, man, she ain't lucky. She's just whipping your ass. I said, and if you want to save some time, don't even buy chips. Just give her the money. She's going to take it from you anyway. You know, and he looked at me. says, what is this, your wife? I said, nope. But I know that she's whipping your ass, and she it ain't nothing about luck. Mm-hmm. You know, I said, I know this woman. I said, she knows what she's, what she's doing. doing. I like to yeah. tell people, spe- uh, specifically with No Limit Hold'em, I'll compare people that don't play. I compare it to it's closer to wall street than blackjack for me like it's, oh, yeah. it's obviously gambling cards come there's odds well, but if you if you know what you're doing playing poker you can hustle people at it well yeah. you know even there's gambling, a lot more skill than there using, is using using the gambling thing when i did that boot camp almost every one of our instructors said as soon as you start gambling you're going to start losing, losing your money. right you know because you know it's calculated mm-hmm. and i mean i use poker principles so much, you know, in my life, you know, just like, just like with this competition, I looked at what I got to do and I asked myself, what can beat me, you know, and then I eliminate that, you know, so, you know. One similarity I like with being a really good poker player and being a really good bartender, one skill you learn is how to read people. Exactly. Obviously with bartending, you're all about creating a vibe. Do they want to be talked to? Should I leave them alone? Do they want a jokester? Do they just want somebody to listen to them? Same thing with poker. Is he leaning forward and then all of a sudden he starts to lean back? Does that mean he's going on tilt? You know, sometimes they toss the chips in. Sometimes they slide the chips. It's funny. This lady I'm talking to now, I tell her, you know, it was something that she did. And I said something about it. She said, how did you know that? I didn't say that. I said, I know it was the way you were talking. You know, I was saying that 
you know, it was the inflection in your voice, the rhythm of your voice changed. I, and I told her, I said, look, I pay attention. This is something I always did before I, I grew up in New York City. So I was always raised to be aware of my environment. And so I said, I pay attention. So when you start doing things differently, then I'm accustomed to you doing them. Trigger something. And I'm going to figure out what's, what's going on. And I'm either going to tell you, I'm either going to ask you or I'm going to tell you. And, uh, yeah, I agree that at the bar, just like having a ring game of nine, of eight other players, well, I got eight people, eight people at the bar top. I got eight different personalities. And I've right. got to make, I have to seduce each one of them, you know, so, um, which is, which is a little different than in poker to where I just have to assess each one of them and then use those those tools to my advantage. It's a lot about positioning, timing. Position, position, um, what they've done in the past, their chip stack, my chip stack, you know, that, um, that go into decisions and more so poker in life. There's nothing that has happened to you in your life that wasn't a result of a decision you made. And successful people make more of the right decisions, while people that aren't as successful tend to make bad decisions. You know, and I've and I've been fortunate enough to make both a lot. <laughs> you know, I've made a whole lot of bad decisions and I've made a few good decisions, but I've been fortunate enough to be able to repair a lot of my bad decisions, you know, and expand on my good decisions. Yeah, when you get a bad decision, it's also a learning experience as long as you learn from it. That's what it is. Like there's a saying in the bartending competition community that there's only two outcomes. You win or you learn. There you go. That's perfect. You know, and and I and I I've experienced that. I don't think I went on a string of coming in second, like five or six consecutive competition, and for a com- somewhat of competitive nature, <laughs> second sucks. Right. Going out on the bubble sucks. The worst. You do know what I'm saying? It's the worst. And, you know, but I can't hold it. You know, am I a bad loser? No. I don't like to lose, but I would never blame my losing on you or on a ref. Like, even with competitions, I there were, there were competitions where I knew I had the best cocktail. But once it's in the judges' hands, those are subjective, you know. There's all kind of things that could cause them to vote a certain way. Um, and if that day it wasn't me, wasn't me, you know. Mm-hmm. Go, you know, I go sit somewhere, lick my wounds, and then move on. Right. 
there's something to be said from getting second place five times in a row. Let's say split the difference and you actually won half of those right now where you're at. You might not be where you're at now if you would have won some of those. It's almost like it was better to get five or six second places in a row because you're more likely to learn from defeat than learn from winning. Obviously, you want to win. It feels good to win. It's funny. We wasn't. I didn't plan on this being a, a, a cake poker conversation. Right. But, you know, they talk about a lot of poker players in great detail can relate their bad beats. <laughs> they can't relate in great detail their wins. Big wins, right. You know. But, you know, this girl that I was telling you about, she told me something, and it stuck with me. They say no one makes a change until they feel pain, you know. So the pain of losing, it makes you say, I don't want to do that again. You know, like like with this, like this competition, I'm watching all the competitors. I'm watching their presentations. I'm taking notes, you know. Luckily, the luck of the draw has the West West bracket last. So by the time we hit the stage, so to speak, I will have seen 12 of the 16 finalists. Uh, I mean, final competitors. So I'll have an idea of what these cats, what the winners did. Was it their cocktail? Or was it them selling the cocktail? Presentation. Because I know that if you can describe this cupcake right, you will literally have the people listening to this podcasting salivating. If you hit the right points, if you hit the right emotional triggers, if you don't just say this is a pink um, whipped cream, but you go into the fact that it's uh that it's a whipped cream that was done with a cheesecake base and strawberry puree in a creme angelese type of whipped cream you know yeah, you're painting a picture you know you paint a picture and 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 you paint a picture with paint on your palate and you put the paint on your palate right you know with food and drinks yes mm-hmm. so um you know, it's uh, yeah, it's really crazy that we ventured into poker, but poker is a big part of my life, not only as an activity, but as a philosophy. You know, one of the first books I ever read on poker was The Tao of Poker. And it was like taking a Zen-like approach to the game. And when I started getting cerebral with my game, my game started changing, you know? I mean, I had, I think I also had instincts, like like what I used to say about my friend is that she knew the game and I just liked the game. And by me liking the game, I dove into it, where things tended to come easy with her. Like, you know- It was she, part of her fabric. Yeah, it was just something in her that someone, was like having a pit bull and you just letting it out on on the on the on the mailman, you know. He knew what to do, 
you know, he just needs to get out, out, out from behind the fence. Yeah. You know, it's a good analogy for it. Uh, so you were mentioned earlier, you're from New York. Uh, first time I talked to you, you also said you were in the music industry early on. Uh, growing up in New York, tell me a little bit about that family life. You have a bigger family, small family. I have a small family. I mean, small, small family. It's me and my sister. It was nuclear. Most of my parents were, you know, I grew up with most of my parents. And that has a lot to do, I think, with when I grew up. So I left New York in 1968. And I was 15 years old. Okay. Well, those prior 15 years, like, okay, my father was somewhat of a dick. All right. And there were certain things that I was an athlete and he'd come to games, but it wasn't like, you know, you see a guy at the Super Bowl, the first thing he thinks is his father or, you know, his father's on the field with him. Well, we didn't have that kind of conversation. I mean, that kind of relationship. relationship. So as a little guy, if it was something I wanted to do in New York, I did it, you know, so you never been to New York. I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff to do in New York. Oh, yeah. And I had very diverse interests. So I would get on a subway or get on a bus, just go do what I, what I needed to do. And I think that that independence uh, and self-reliance uh, was part of my foundation. So like, you know, one of the things, I mean, I say my father was a dick, but I always say that my father made me the man that I am and my mother made me the person that I am. Okay. That's a good so, way to put it. So, um, you know, as far as defending myself, you know, levels of respect. Um, the structure, not, discipline. Yeah. I mean, personal discipline, never, you know, he, he proved to me that, well, I used to get in trouble if I told him I couldn't do something. Like, I, I would probably get in less trouble saying, fuck you, than saying I can't. Okay. All right? And that was something that I passed on to my daughter, too, is that the two words I can't is you surrendering to laziness you know you can't because you don't want to try you know you don't want to you don't want to try again you know or you don't want to try again being scared of failure you know well yeah and you know talking about my mother my father too told me would would instill in me never say can't and my mother instilled in me nothing beats a try but a failure all right so, you know, yin and yang. Right. Like you got uh, the foundation from your father on like structure, but your mother brought you empathy, maybe. But maybe a human being. Yeah, right. And um, so growing up in New York, my father, and, you know, I think I was destined to work in the music business because when I was in elementary school, my father worked at a publication called the Amsterdam News. And... It's the country's largest African-American newspaper. Well, he did entertainment advertising. So 
one of his accounts was the Apollo. Hmm. And, and I know they can't see, but the my father's office was right here. Okay. This is the street. And the back door, the stage door to the Apollo was right here. Oh. So I would find excuses. You know, my father had taken me to the Apollo. You know, we'd go through the back door. Hey, this is my son. So I would find excuses after school to go visit my father. A lot of times I knew he wasn't in the office. But I'd go. He said, Dad's not here. So I said, okay. I'd go across the street. Go to the back door, and you know, say, hey, you know, how y'all doing? Can I do anything for you? You know, so I'd run errands, I'd go pick up laundry, I'd go get coffee, you know, and you know, so I had gotten accustomed to be to being around entertainers and not tripping. Felt comfortable with it. I was I was comfortable with it. So also, I got comfortable with walking through back doors. Stage doors. Yeah. So as I got older, I just changed venues. Yeah. I'd go to the Fox. Th- I I'd go to the Beacon Theater and walk through the back door like I was supposed to be there. Yeah. Well, co- I'm coming up on an ad break real quick. Okay. Um, and we're gonna continue this conversation real short though. I want to use this short break to mention a bakery in Lake Jackson, Texas, called Cravem Cakes. Crave them with a K. An employee there named Daniela Barrera has been kind enough to donate the Tres Leches that was used in the Garrett Brown episode, as well as the Red Velvet Cupcakes for this week's episode. Uh, because of her employment, she won't let me pay her for those personal recipes, and I don't want to get her in any trouble by mentioning this. But all I want to do is recommend that if you're in the Brazoria County area and you have any baking needs, be sure and order at Crave em Cakes and also ask for Daniela. You can call the store directly at 979-292-8229, and you can find them on Facebook by searching at Cravem Cakes. That's K-R-A-V-E-M-C-A-K-E-S. Cravem with a K. I'm back with Ed here. We were talking about him growing up in New York. You were talking about switching venues or? Yeah, and then it dawned on me, well, there was always artists that I liked to see, so I just go to their concerts and walk through the back door. Hmm. Well, you know, I'm 13 years old, and I had the confidence, and very rarely did I get stopped. So, uh, actually, that's how I met George Clinton. Oh, shit. I used to sneak into his shows and it got to a point where he saw me always coming through the back door and if he was in town he would tell me just wait and come in with me so it got to a point where i just stand at the back door or at the loading dock and when their limo or bus came through he'd stop i'd get on go on in the venue dang so you act like you belong long enough and then you do belong yeah, act like you're supposed to be there. I mean, yeah, if you act like you're supposed to be there, and that's no different. I mean, even as a bartender, you know, I realize that the legal drinking age is 21. And there's some cats that look like babies sitting at the bar, and I card them. Then there's some cats that look like they could be 35. 
and I don't card them, but as soon as they order, I know they ain't never been in a bar before. Can I get a Long Island, please? Yeah. Um, or, hold it. I asked, this kid asked me for a vodka tonic. And I said, what kind of vodka do you want? And it was like, uh, uh, and he must have been looking at the bar. We said something like Seagrams. I said, look, man, here's the deal. Here's the deal. If you had just said that shit with confidence, you'd be drinking now. I said, but, you know, you don't know what you, you know, you need to work on your game. I can't, sir. You know, I mean, I know that the TABC is listening. This was a a fictional account. I would never do anything like that. Hypothetically speaking. Hypothetically speaking, because... I follow the rules, you dig? 100%. Uh, uh, end of disclaimer. Uh, yeah, so, man, the music business, I uh, I had thought I was going to be a surgeon. and At a young age, 13, 14, oh, 15? Oh, man, yeah, early. Surgeon. Younger than that, I wanted to be a plastic surgeon. Um, and That's specific, and, too. Yeah, and when I got into college, well, I went, I played football for a season, I came back to Houston, and I went to TSU, still thinking I want to be a doctor. So I knew I needed some. I was playing baseball at TSU. Me and the coach didn't get along, so I stopped playing. And right as I stopped playing, they started having notices about starting a radio station KTSU. So I was uh, the original the the founding music and program director KTSU. Oh shit! And I was the first person on the air. I hadn't planned to be. The guy that had planned to go on the air was in Chicago and got shot. Jeez. Not fatally, but he got shot to where he was in Chicago on the day we went on the air, and I was the only one there. So I went. I flipped the switch, and I did his shift until he got back. I stayed on the air a little while longer, and then I just focused on programming music. And it's still early 20s, though, right? College years, early mid 20s? Yeah, I might have been. I'm No, I was still in my, I was 19. Okay. And so as a result, I started meeting all the record guys, and one of the guys for who worked for CBS Records which is now Sony Music. He asked me, would I want to be a, a college representative? I said, sure. <laughs> you know, I didn't know nothing about program music. I didn't know nothing about nothing. You know, I was... Right. 19-year-olds don't know anything. Yeah, well, that too. <laughs> um, so I started working for CBS, and I worked for them for a couple of years, and I left school. And... I started taking audio engineering and I was taking it in Houston, but the company also did classes all over the country. So I figured I'd take that leap and I went back to New York. Okay. And when you moved down to Texas, did you have family that stayed in New York? Yeah. I mean, I had a couple of aunts, you know, aunts and uncles. But moved down with your mother and father when you came to Houston. Yeah, moved down with my mother. And... So I went up there and I was taking the classes 
And I sort of gotten used to, you know, getting into places, getting into shows and whatnot. So right before I left, I had, it was High Times Magazine just at the, at the stands. So I write, I called them up and I asked them if I could review music for them. So like they said, sure, send us your reviews. They're good, we'll print them. But what it did, it gave me credibility. So I could call a concert promoter and say, I need to interview so-and-so. I need to interview so-and-so. Say so, you're working for High Times Magazine. Because I'm, yeah. I'm the music, I'm the music, music critic for High, High Times Magazine. Damn, you're so, good. So uh, when I get to New York, I'm walking, uh, well, one of the first projects I did was when the summit opened, the Who headlined the first show at the summit. Okay. But Toots and the Maytals, which is a legendary reggae band, opened for them. So I said, I don't want to interview the Who. I said, you know, I, I figured low-hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. Let me interview Toots. Well, I talked to their manager. Me and their manager kick it off. Takes me to the hotel room. I walk in the room, it's freaking a fog. <laughs> well, my kind of room. I sit down, start smoking weed with these guys. Big fucking mistake. <laughs> All right. And I mean, you know, I thought I could hang. I'm 19. <laughs> you know, I'm running shit on campus. Thought you got lungs of steel. Man, I did, however, have the foresight to turn on my recorder. And because I did did another interview where the recorder never got turned on. Oh, I hate when that uh, happens. Oh, yeah. And uh, we talked, and like it got to the point where I told him, I can't smoke no more. <laughs> I can't smoke with y'all. I can't. I can't. I can barely sit up. All right. So, but. They laughed, they hoorahed me, and I did it. And the guy, the manager said, how would you like to work for Island Records? I said, hell yeah, I'd like to work for them, blah, blah, blah. So I never heard anything. Now I'm in New York. So I'm going, I, this was when you had phone booths with phone books in them. I take the yellow page, I tore out all the pages for recording studios. And I started down where the World Trade Centers were in Battery Park and just started walking. And everywhere, and I'd go to every recording studio. I got to the record plant and I met this guy. We were talking, gave me a lot of good advice. His name is Shelly Yakis. He became one of the biggest producers in the business. And while we were doing this, he was doing a session. So he asked me, how do I like these guys? I said, they're pretty badass. It was Kiss's first album. No way. So I got to meet them cats. What? And we stayed in touch. And while I'm doing this, I bump in to Toots and the Maytals manager. How, I don't know how many people bump into people in New York City. That's kismet at that point. But I bump into this dude. And so we talk, he says, you know, what are you doing in the yard? I told him. He said, you still want to work for Ireland? I said, yeah. He says, well, Chris Blackwell, who owned Island Records, 
at the time is in New York. You know, I'll let them know you're here and I'll set up a meeting. So, you know, I'm also 19 and, you know, little I don't believe you. So I say, okay, great. And then, you know, go, yeah, what the fuck. Yeah. Well, I got back to my aunt's house and she said, do you know a guy named Gary Kerfers? I said, yeah. She, she said, well, he called and left a number. He said he wants you to meet up with some guy named something Blackwell. I said, really? So I called. We had the meeting. And there used to be this restaurant in New York called Horn and Arctic. And, it was, and they had places called the Automat. And it was almost like, if you can imagine a live vending machine. So they had these little doors. And, you know, you want a piece of pie, you put in the money for the pie, okay. open the door, take the pie out, and then you could see someone put another piece of pie in. Okay. So we meet at the automatic. We talk. We have a good conversation. He says, come on with me, all right? I got something to do. And the automatic was on 57th Street. 57th Street is music publishers, um, mastering studios, stuff like that. Uh, so we go on a 57th Street and we go into Sterling Sound. I'm not even thinking about anything. I'm just following this dude. <laughs> but this white Jamaican walking around New York barefoot. His family, the Blackwell family, one of the most prominent. It, they made their money on tea. So the Blackwell tea is like big time money in Jamaica. This guy's walking around barefoot. So we get to Sterling Sound, we go up into the studio, he goes into the studio and opens the door. It's freaking Bob Marley and Aston and uh, Aston Barrett uh, mastering Roster Man vibration. And Bob looks, first words that Bob Marley ever said to me was he looked at me and he says, enough bottom? I looked around like, hold it, talking to me? Because <laughs> like, I'm like fucked up, man. I'm yeah. shocked and shit. Like how and, tight did your asshole get yeah. right there? <laughs> oh yeah, man. You know, I could, I could have, I could have seduced a dolphin. <laughs> <you know? laughs> so I said, what? And I, and then I said, there's never too much bottom. And and Ashton Baron said, true, man, true. Oh, and so you know, and then we talked. So. My first full-time gig in the music industry was to coordinate promotions and marketing for Bob Marley's yeah. first American tour. That's like, how do you go up from there? How does it not go, only go down well, you, know, you just I was fortunate because I way. worked with, with Island and then moved to, I mean, I, I worked with legends, man. I was just fortunate enough throughout my career to work with legends. Mm -hmm. You know, I uh, while I was a campus representative, for CBS, I can remember taking Bob Marley, uh, I mean, not Bob Marley, Bruce Springsteen to lunch, and no one knew who he was. You know, um, almost got in a fight with Billy Joel. Um, you know, but I could see that. No, yeah. oh, he's a fucking <laughs> asshole. Like I mean, he. I mean, I was gonna. I should say he was an asshole. With age, people's usually mellow out, but. I've uh, I've had some. I mean, the music business was good for me. Sometimes too good, 
you know, because I fully embrace the sex, drugs, and rock and roll aspect of it. Ramblers. Uh, and I, uh, and when I started burning out, I went to culinary school. Okay, so how old were you then when we're talking about burnout from the music industry? When you finally decided, okay, I got to switch it up. The path I'm on right now isn't sustainable. That'd be one thing in early 30s? Mid 30s, maybe. Okay, that sounds about right. Mid 30s, I went into, I went into culinary school and I got, I, um, I got to apprentice with a really prominent chef in Houston. Are you, you, yeah. I, I, I was, I was uh, Bruce, Bruce Bolzan's apprentice for a couple of years, learned a lot, um, went back into the music business briefly and realized it really was that I, that I was over that because I realized I didn't have the passion to be a chef. It's a lot of discipline too in that specific field. Like if you're gonna, yeah. if you want to be a successful chef at that level, I mean, it's doctor's hours. You know, you're doing sixty. And not 70. only doctor's hours. That in Houston, if you want to be a successful chef and make money, you pretty much have to own your own restaurant. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And I wasn't. I def. I mean, even today. I have no aspirations of owning a restaurant or a bar. I don't feel like you yeah. want to be locked down. Like you no. mentioned, you like to travel. You're a free spirit in that you know, sense. Yeah, and I'm kind of lazy. You know, so I'm lazy, but if I got to do, I do the work that I got to do, which means 18, 20-hour days, you know. And then also one of the other philosophies was when I started working in the music business, one of them old heads that was showing me the ropes said, this is a fun business, and when it stops being fun, get out. Well, when you're 19 and it's your first job, you tend to think that work is supposed to be fun. And I work for a bunch of record companies, so I went from one job to another, but it was always the same fun aspect. Mm -hmm. you know. So now I'm back into my element that I'm doing something that's fun, and I'm providing fun. You know, so I feel real comfortable doing this. And, you know, I take it very seriously. But I found out that I didn't have the passion to be a chef. So I gravitated in front of the house. One day a server doesn't show up. I jump behind the bar and stay there. Well, that happened for about 10 years. Then I started working at State of Grace. Off Westheimer? And it was, I opened up State of Grace. It was the first bar team that I worked on that was a craft bar team. And then it was like, light bulb moment. Yeah. I realized that my passion in culinary was creating and mixing flavors. Now I was just doing this with liquids. And so from that point, it just, it just ballooned. Like, um, you know, it was like, it was nothing I wouldn't try. You know, no fear, no fear, you know. Yeah, sometimes things went good. Sometimes, you know, I poured gasoline, <laughs> you know. And, but it was always, you know, my, my that what I'd learned from my chef on blending flavors just carried over. So I wasn't seasoning meats, but 
seasoning like drinks. I like seasoning drinks. You know, just like like everyone, you know, thinks of simple syrup as strictly a sweetener. Well, it's actually also a seasoning. You know, so because there's, you know, especially if you're using acids. I mean, like um, like citrus. You have acids also in your spirit. So sometimes you need something sweet to just round off the rough edges, not necessarily hitting the sweet sensors on your tongue, but just making it to where you're not highlighting the sour or bitter sensors on your tongue. Yeah, it reminds me of a margarita. How you can yeah. have it where it's too acidic when you're drinking a margarita. You can tell oh. when they're using a real sugary sweet and sour. Yeah, or, you know, you need to just upgrade where you get your margaritas. Right. You know, because that was something that I, bringing up margaritas, that I always thought was the case until I started adding an egg white to my margaritas. Egg white's huge. Yeah. Have you ever been to a place called Pastry War? Well, yes. Have you heard of that place? Yes and no. That's one of the best margaritas I've ever had, I believe. Well, one, they were an agave bar. So their whole menu was based on agave spirits. But Sarah, I can't think of Sarah's last name. I actually worked with Sarah. She became one of the first women to ever run a restaurant bar in Houston. And her and, um, and Krista Michelle um, ran Oshin. And I worked with them, and they're amazing. Uh, Krista, well, Krista stayed in the bar business. Sarah's now selling real estate, and I know she's killing it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I learned a lot from them. Egg whites are big in, a, in sour style drinks because it, again, cuts well, a lot of it. technically, any classic sour should have an egg white in it. So it helps with the acidity, correct? It helps with the acidity. It... It forms an emulsion. It gives you a different mouthfeel. Silky is always yeah. a word I think of. It gives you a different mouthfeel, um, and it makes uh, your drink just more just pleasant. And if you don't, if you don't tell anybody it's in there, nobody would say, "Oh, there's eggs in my drink." You know? uh, I mean, you know, that's the thing. At least you know, my bartending style is, you know, reading people. I'm not. I've told people, just shut up and drink the drink. Yeah. You know, I say, you know, if you don't, I'm not going to give you any. Say, let, let's be real about it. If I, if you get sick at my bar, that's a liability for my business. I'm not going to do anything that one's going to get you sick and get me fired. Right. I said, two, there's a real good reason why I'm on this side of the bar and you're on that side of the bar. I said, my whole thing is to make you, make you happy. Have a good so time. So I'm not going to give you anything that won't do that. Yeah. I said, trust me. I said, if you don't like this cocktail, I'll make you whatever you want in 45 seconds. You know, I get very few drinks set back. Yeah. You know, um, especially the trust me drinks, because. You know, we'll talk and I'll put something together. I love know? doing that when I'm bartending. If I get to somebody and they don't necessarily know what they want, I'm like, well, what kind of liquor? Do you like a rum? Do you like vodka? Do you like sweet or sour? And then I love, I like when they give you that freedom to go play and build. You know, and some, sometimes when they don't give me the freedom, I take it. Like, 
if someone comes to the bar and orders like Crown and Coke, I'll say, how long have you been drinking? And they'll say, whatever, since I was 19 or whatever. I say, you've been drinking Crown and Coke all that time, haven't you? Yeah, it's my drink. So not tonight. <laughs> Said you're not going to drink Crown and Coke tonight. And, you know, they'll look at me like, you know, did you really just tell me that you're not going to give me what I asked for? And I tell them, yeah, I said, I got something for you. If you don't like it, don't take me but five seconds to go crown, crown and coke. coke. You know, but today we change. What's your first thing when somebody says crown and coke? You're already thinking whiskey then. What drink are you making them? I don't know. To put you on the spot. Depends on how I feel. Depends on where I'm working, what I got to work with. Yeah, that's true. You know, I might I might make them a New York sour. I might make you know, a lot of times with a Crown and Coke, my first ind- indication is to make some form of a boulevard, a Boulevardier. Um, so, sometimes I won't do straight whiskey, Campari, sweet vermouth. Like what I've been leaning towards is whiskey, sweet vermouth, and drambouille. Okay. You know, or some type of liqueur. So it's got its base in like a Manhattan or old fashioned, well, more in Manhattan than old fashioned, obviously. Yeah, it's, but. you know, it'll, you know, I'll, I'll probably lean to making a hybrid of an old fashioned and a, and a Manhattan, you know, dependent. And it'll depend on how I feel. Sometimes. I might, I might just make them a margarita. Yeah. You know, I just might make them something like altogether different, mm-hmm. you know, uh, People appreciate that. I've learned over the years. People really like that. They're like, oh, this is a good drink. Thank you. Yeah. And then you get people that when they come back to that bar, there might be four bartenders working and they want you to make it. Even exactly. if the next time they do get that crowd. Oh, yeah, I, I worked at, at a steakhouse where there was a guy that would call before he came. And one day I came to work and the bartender told me, and what did you do to this guy? I said, what are you talking about? This guy came in and told me what you made him. I made it for him. The guy said, no, I can't drink this. Love that. You know, and, and you know, naturally, I took that as an opportunity to, to, to hoorah the, my, my, my teammate, you know, but it was, it was sort of a good feeling. It's a great feeling. That, you know, that I locked it in. When I worked at State of Grace, I had my own secret menu because we had a bar manager that was based out of Seattle and she really didn't have, she made good cocktails. She never pulsed on Houston. You know, something you, know, you need, Texas is a different animal. Yeah, totally. So I made, I, I used to work, been the state of grace. My will was the one all the way at the end by the oyster bar they called okay. Hawaii. So I used to work Hawaii, and I had it was, I was in my own little world. I'd be making drinks. People go to the table, and they say, "Hey, Ed, I hear from the service world. Ed, what's in what's in your margarita?" Yep. And I'd say, "Don't worry, I got you." Send it down. See, that'd get me in trouble sometimes working at a place because the manager would walk up, "Hey, we have you know some places want you to make their recipes." Yeah. Hey, we have our make it this way so continue you know if guests can come in they can get the same thing every time and I understand that but I also loved taking pride in the fact that they wanted it my way. Yeah, I say, "Hey man, dude told me to make him a drink." Yep. So I did. Yeah. 
you know, you know, what are you going to do? Um, if anything, a place should ask you, Hey, how do you, I like when the bartenders, how do you make your drink? Like when I'm getting, if I got off work and I'm sitting on the other side of the bar and then somebody else wants another drink that I'd made and the bartender has to come up, how do you make your drink? They're almost rolling their eyes. Well, you know, I also have a, I don't have a problem going to a bar and asking the bartender, do you mind me walking you through a cocktail? Mm -hmm. And they say, what do you mean? I said, I'm a bartender. I'm, I have certain cocktails that I like a certain way. And I think you have all the ingredients I need. So you mind if I talk you through how I do my whatever. And I'll do it a lot. And I don't drink. So I'm usually doing it for some girl or a guest that I'm with. And, you know, don't want them. A lot of times I'll respect the bar. But if they come out with a subpar drink, you know, then I got to look out for my people. Yeah. You know, and I'll... I'll be courteous about it. I know they ain't gonna let me behind the bar, <laughs> right. um, but I'll say on this side of the bar, let's let's do this. And you know, then there was things with guys. I've never seen anything done like that before. So I say, yeah, I mean, it's just practice. I do things a little different. You know, I give them my card and I say, you want to talk about drinks? Give me a call. Yeah, even different styles, philosophies. Yeah. I mean, and yeah, I can remember days just ordering a glass of wine just so I ordered something. And sitting and just watching the bartenders at Anvil for three or four hours. Anvil's fun. Just watching them work. Mm -hmm. You know, picking up, taking mental notes. You know, going to bars. I mean, I got, I got, Houston's got so many great bartenders. You've been to Whiskey Cake, I'm guessing, too. I haven't been to, I mean. You haven't? I, I've been to Whiskey Cake, but not as a patron. Okay. Whiskey Cake does not want me working there. For some odd reason. Why? It seems like exactly what they look for. Yeah. I don't get. They're, they're, I've interviewed three times in whiskey. Cake. Their whole thing is craft bartender. I don't. Know. I I've, I've interviewed three times in whiskey cake, and never got called back. Oh, for that's, a second that's their loss, honestly. Obviously. I mean, at this point, side look. I mean, no big deal. Right. You know. Um, and. Uh, well, where you're at right now, you don't want to be locked down. Like you said, you don't need. Well, now. Last time I talked to you, you referred to yourself as a mercenary. And I like the way I like the way I you mean, said I, that. I, I am, I am going to go full mercenary mode when COVID opens up. I mean, I also, I've also put it out in the universe that I'm winning this competition. This competition belongs to me. So things will be a little different because... I will probably, um, as with most of these national competitions, I will probably have to uh, give an obligation to either Maker's Mark or Beams and Torrey, which I'm really good with, you know, because um, it's not going to do anything to strengthen my brand, mm -hmm. you know. But uh, yeah, man, I'm going to hit the road. I'm in the process of. Uh, well, after I thought about it, I was getting ready to go get my van, my truck wrapped. I'm going to get it wrapped, but I'm going to wait. You know, it's only a couple more weeks. I'm thinking about getting my truck wrapped for months. So I'm going to wait till this competition over, over. And, you know, I might want to get it wrapped a different way, you know, after the competition. Yeah. But, um... Yeah, I'm really excited about this competition. There's 15 other bartenders 
that know their shit um, that I've been really impressed with the with some of the cocktails. Uh, I still got this Monday. If anybody's not what anybody's around, um, the North Bracket will be on at six six o'clock. I think six or seven o'clock. But you could check it out by going to the Power of the Palette Lounge on Facebook. I'll make sure and, to have a link for that yeah, too. And there's a link. And being as we're talking about links. I gotta take one more quick ad break. Okay. Uh when we come back from that. Oh, uh, just a little quick break. I'll hit stop. Oh, hundred percent. All right, so what we're gonna have uh, now for the last segment here with Ed. Uh, he's gonna go over the drink that he's making for the competition. You titled it the Bun Be Somebody. No, Bun Be Someone. Bun Be Someone, and that's off yeah. the the art off the bridge off of Fifty Nine, where it exactly. says Be Someone, right? Exactly. Uh, this competition, I'm supposed to be rep. Uh, it's supposed to rep your city, and I came up with Bun Be Someone because when I designed my cocktail. I wanted it to be uh, simple to make, but yet complex in uh, in its flavor profile. And when I started to think of a name, which I usually have trouble with naming my cocktails, I thought on that on that level that um, Bun B came up. I knew I had. I knew I had a um, a drink that tastes like a cinnamon bun, so Bun D's name just popped up. And when I thought about Bun, Bun is a very complex individual. He's, as you know, a multi-platinum, a recording artist, very influential in the emergence of Southern rap with his role as a founding member of um, UGK. And um, he's on media. He's a, a social activist, family man. And most of all, the man is a professor at Rice University. Uh, very complex, very much a Renaissance man. Then I thought about be someone. When you, if you're in Houston, that be someone graffiti tag is real important to the city. Um, when we were going through the Harvey situation, one of the things to pull us together was the TV stations focusing in on be someone. When the Astros won the World Series in joy and jubilation, the city went to be someone. And so it's one of those things that everything just came together right. So in making this cocktail, like I said, I'm going to use some, start with all of my inexpensive um, ingredients first. So I'm going to put a couple of dash of Miracle Mile um, Bergamot bitters. And you can get these bitters online. They don't sell them at any store I know of in Houston, but it's worth ordering them because they make delicious bitters. I'm going to then go with the Miracle Mild Toasted Pecan Bitter. 
couple of dashes. I made a simple syrup that consists of demerara sugar and um, Ceylon cinnamon and Madagascar vanilla uh, bean. Now, because I'm doing this, well, whenever I bartend, I always like to use the best ingredients available. So, like I was telling Jay earlier, my jar of bitter of simple syrup is probably $25, $30. But even just using an ounce at a time, it does make such a difference in the cocktail. On this particular cocktail, I'm using Tawaka on my original recipe. It called for liquor 43 um, just because I think the flavors are much richer. Similar vanilla liqueur, but I just like the flavor profile in the liquor 43. Another important ingredients is italicus. It's a bergamot liqueur and I'm using the bergamot to add tannin, a sort of a tannic mouthfeel because I am making a, a liquid cinnamon bun and uh, I want you to sort of get that bready type of sensation. So now this is maybe the most important ingredient next to the maker's mark and it's going to be a couple of bar spoons of Pedro Jimenez sherry. It's a sherry made by grapes of the same name, Pedro Jimenez. They age those grapes in the sun so they tend to take on the texture and more so the flavor of raisins. Now for my Maker's Mark, I deal with a lot of bourbons but I really like using Maker's Mark for cocktails. Part of it is because of an aspect of their mash bill. They use uh, red winter wheat in their mash bill. Excuse me. And, and that tends to bring about a little softer approach. Now, um, Bill Samuels, who is the founder of the Maker's Mark brand, when he went to distill, when he went to, to build Maker's Mark, he said that he didn't want a bourbon that would blow your ears off. And, and that's exactly what Maker's Mark did not do. They, um, it's a nice balance, a nice balance of bourbon for cocktails. And uh, it just works so great with this one. I'm gonna put some, I'm gonna just do this in your glass. That'll work. Uh, but I'm gonna get some ice. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Maker's Mark. Back when I was a whiskey drinker, Maker's Mark was my go-to. 
And I like doing old fashions with those specifically. Either that or a Woodford Reserve. If somebody's letting me make their old fashioned, I'm doing Makers or Woodford. Yeah, Makers has always been good quality. Well, I'm going to stir this up and get it nice and cold. I usually stir for about 30 seconds and it'll get the right dilution for, for this cocktail. Explain real quick the difference in stirring and shaking and why okay. it's more beneficial to the stir. The best way to, to, to describe stirring takes longer to dilute and chill your drink, but your drink will stay cold longer. Shaking will dilute and chill your drink quicker, but it will also get warm quicker. And most people shake way too long. You only want to shake your cocktail about 20, about 12 seconds. After that, you're only getting dilution. There's you're not getting any now. cold. You're not getting any cold. So while right before I pour, I'm going to set up the last aspect of my cocktail. And that is to get some cinnamon smoke. My favorite part. So I'm going to just find this smoke machine. And then I'm going to pour. And unlike with the old fashioned, I just want to get a little bit of smoke. It's almost like the garnish for the drink. It is my garnish. And actually, I got a, I got a garnish that I'm going to use in the competition that I'll tell you when we're not on the air. Perfect. All right. And, this and there we go. Bun B someone. Yeah. Made just for you. You notice the smoke is almost all gone, but it's there because it's, I put that on there to spark your olfactory sensors to get you ready for the other flavors. So Jay, what do you think? Get a sip again real quick. Again, the, the, the best part, we're going for cinnamon, cinnamon roll. Right off the bat, you get that hint. It's almost like a, that bold, like a buttery. When you're doing a, when you're, when I'm doing cinnamon rolls, I use a round bacon dish, and it's always that middle cinnamon roll. It's always the best. the best one, and that's the first flavor you're getting here is that that bold cinnamon flavor. And what I like about it is not overpowering the maker's mark. You're still getting that bourbon flavor, and it's not like you said, blowing your ears out. You know, it's not too intense. It's almost a compliment to the drink. You know, actually, actually, um, that's something that I think a lot of bartenders don't realize. Like someone asked me, like what kind of drinks I made. And I told them I don't make drinks, I make cocktails. And so they want to know what was the difference. I said, most people drink a drink to get drunk. I said, people drink cocktails to to savor and enjoy, you know, and like even behind the bar, I have people order a drink 
and then ask me to make it strong, and I'll politely refuse. And that's when you know you got a rookie drinker. Well, know. yeah, or again, I mean, well, like say we talked about Long Islands earlier. Yeah. Someone order a Long Island, oh, I know right then they're just there to get drunk. Right. You know, they don't, how do you, how do you enjoy five, five different liquors? Yeah. And all yeah. that sweet and sour. You can't enjoy that without some Tums. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, I know. You know, but I made some killer LITs too. Yeah. What, what's the sherry aspect? Going back to this bun, be someone. What's the sherry aspect again? The liqueur you were using that gives it that it's, port? Um, it's Pedro Jimenez. Pedro Jimenez. And it's uh, usually a dessert, a dessert sherry. It gives a good body to this. It's got body. Yeah. It's it does have the flavor profile of raisins like a lot of wine people don't like Pedro Jimenez and they will refer to it as raisin juice. Really? Yeah, I mean, but that's sort of what it is. But you know, and I can see, depending on what I'm eating or what I've ate, if whether or not I'd want to have a cordial glass of Pedro Jimenez. You know, but I Actually, I went to a sherry, a sherry tasting, and we tasted the Pedro. And as soon as I tasted the Pedro Jimenez, I started mentally working on the cocktail. Yeah. So that was the first part then, like you had the sherry, and then you built it from around there. On that cocktail, a lot of times I've had people give me the name of a drink, and then I just built a drink around the name. Really. It's an influence. That's again, some people look at me sideways when I say, oh, bartending is an art. Nobody really thinks, when you think art, the casual person doesn't think of bartending as an artist. And they're totally missing the boat because it is art. It's all. I was wondering, when I read the outline, I was saying, I think one of your, one of your, um, one of the bullet points. Bullet points was, do I consider myself creative or, and you know, to be honest, man. I never did. I never thought of me doing what I do as art until one of my guests brought it up. Said like he had, he introduced me to someone and said, "Yeah, Ed is an artist." Yep. And I said, "Really?" You know, I'm, th- I'm like saying this to myself, and I think by me not taking myself real seriously that you know i never i never labeled myself like yesterday i got into this thing with this dude because i said i'm just a bartender and he's like no you way more than i said man end of the day i'm just a bartender you know you know i might approach things differently but i'm gonna i'm a bartender I'm proud to tend to the bar. You know, I just recently gotten used to people referring to me as a mixologist. Or craft bartender. Well, I mean, throw I would that take, word. I would take craft over mixologist because so many hacks have given that word a bad name. Yeah. You know, I'm quite sure if you look in a thesaurus, Next to mixologist, the first one is probably asshole. <laughs> All right. And 
Now, I'm not saying I'm not, but one, uh, I'm a bartender. So I come with whatever the party calls for. And sometimes the party calls for you being an asshole. All right, that's in general. But as far as my craft goes, I uh, I respect my guests unconditionally, and I I respect my peers. That I uh, I know that every time I get behind the bar, I can learn something. You know that's why. If you have, you know, the statement that if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. In the wrong room. Yeah. I don't never want to be the best bartender behind the bar because if I am, you're not I learning. Mean, I mean, like, yeah. I mean, if I did a gig, you know, if I did a one-off, you know, like I'm coming in, I'm doing a gig and then bouncing. Well, yeah, if I'm the best, I'm, if I'm the best behind the bar, in the way I'm supposed to be, you know, but. If I'm working somewhere and there's somebody that I can't watch and pick, I mean, and sometimes it's as simple as I always think that my shape could be better, you know. So watching how other people shape, um, watching how people do just do what they do, you know, build a drink. Um, it's uh, it's just you know I've noticed that yeah maybe I am an artist. Hundred percent. You know, you know maybe I am an artist, and you know I definitely have succumbed to the fact that I am a part of a creative pursuit, and uh, but yeah, I'm just trying to get better every day. Yeah, that's you know? all I can do. I always use the the explanation of when you're building a house in the very beginning, you're not trying to think about the whole total house being done. It could be overwhelming. You just put down a brick each day. That's right. What's the brick today? What's you, the brick today? You, you and then all the foundation. And then all of a sudden then, one day you got, you a, got house. a house. Yep. Yeah, one day you, you have an apartment. Yep. Hmm. I always relate that to, cause at a certain point I'd stopped drinking and trying to talk to other people who might have alcohol problems or any kind of, you know, uh -huh. substance issue. Instead of saying, I'm not drinking anymore. I'm never drinking again. Not you've already, yeah. You If you say you've never drinking again, you've already lost. You're putting pressure on yourself. Nobody else is even putting pressure on. And what you do, let's say you have it really, really bad. Wake up in the morning, normally you have a shot. Let's say, hey, let's wait till, make it till lunch. And at lunch, I can reward. Make it till three. Yes, that's what and I say. Three, make, it till seven. make it till dinner, and then reward yourself with one at dinner if you want. But then you get to dinner, and you're like, ow, you know, and then you just. Know, yeah, I tell you what, I'll wait till lunch tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And you, I mean, you know, my thing was, you know, I don't drink now, but it wasn't because I had a drinking problem. I just did dumb shit when I was under the influence of alcohol. Then you can say that's and a drinking problem. I realized problem, that. But, you know, my thing was, was, um, was cocaine and you know I got to where you know that was my best friend and you know and I had to you know part of the burnout you know I also got to that point where you know some people just don't like their job but I was on a track to, to, to killing myself you know and, I, and you know it's one thing to to be 
to be that way in normal life. But I lived in, I worked in an industry where I could put cocaine on my expense account. Yeah. You know, so that, you know, the accessibility and the comes with the territory of yeah. bartending, traveling, playing oh, poker. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's the rock I and roll mean, lifestyle. You know, I, I was like, I told people that I try to get 65 seconds out of every minute. Well, you know, I was running, I was running that way to where, you know, it was funny. One of the COVID, the COVID thing actually had me flashback, doing flashbacks of my drug abuse days because I've been so out of whack with what day it was and what time it was. I mean, I got a watch, I got a phone, and still I can't lock into time and space. Yeah. Well, I can remember there was times where I didn't sleep for four or five days, you know, and then when I did wake up, I had to ask somebody what day was, you know, um, almost getting a little PTSD then with COVID. It's almost reminding you of that then, huh? Yeah. yeah. You know, and uh, so um, it's uh, it's been, you know, it's been it's been great, man. You know, I got my daughter has um, she's creative. She has her own. Uh, she's a makeup artist. Mm-hmm. She has her own. Uh, cosmetic line. I think when we first talked, she was only doing lipsticks, but she that she's added lip lip care treatment and an eyeliner. So she's starting to expand her portfolio. I'm gonna have to have her on. I don't yeah, know why I haven't even reached out to my, her yet. My honestly. daughter is freaking amazing. We have a mutual and, friend of a, a girl I grew up with knows her. So yeah. when the first time I uh, came into contact with you and was putting it online, then she was like, "Oh my god, you know her!" Da, da, da. You know, so it was cool to. She's amazing. She mm-hmm. just she just had her third child, my third grandchild, um, and you know she's a hustler, um, like her dad. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's... just from not getting to meet her personally, but just from seeing some of the posts that I've seen, and then knowing you, you can see the influence. Like that is—that's your well, daughter. Yeah. You know, I mean, and yeah, man, she, um, you know, was she just been amazing? She's probably saved my life, um, but she's a remarkable woman, and you know, there have been some remarkable women that have helped me out. If I can give shout outs on here, I just talked about my daughter. Um, a lady has been by my side throughout this competition. Her name is Darius Stewart. She's been amazing. Um, there's a sister up in Dallas, uh, Nicole. Hold on. Nicole Savvy, Nicole Wright. She has like been a trooper. She does internet marketing and I'll get a notice on my phone and she's done a post or a video um, that has just been remarkable. My sister, who is my sister, we're roommates, you know, you know, like all other sisters, you know, I love her to death. But I could also choke her on a regular basis. <laughs> Depending on the weather, right? <laughs> and uh, my bestie, Angela Morgan. Um, 
She uh, she's been one of my biggest cheerleaders, and it's funny that I'm naming all women. So you know, no, you're a smart I, man. I am not a hoe. No, anymore. no, no. Uh, there are some men. Naturally, I want to. Uh, there's a guy that I want to thank. His name is Andre Williams. Andre Williams taught me how to make money in the hospitality industry. He was a GM, taught me a lot about the nuances of doing what I do. And it was one of them, one of them rare occasions that he was my GM and we developed a friendship. And we've been friends. As a matter of fact, he called me as I was coming down the street. To, and I told him I got to get off the phone because I don't know where I'm going. Yeah. But hopefully if you're listening to this, you know, Andre has been very important. It's, it's one of those guys that taught me stuff to where I hear him telling it to me, either when I'm slacking or I need that push. Um, I like to thank Warren Luckett and all the people at Black Restaurant Week, Warren, Derek, Fallon. Um, Y'all been with me from the start, and I thoroughly intend to bring this championship home to Houston where it belongs. I want to thank Rashad Alameen. He's been my wingman for years, and he's currently the Ed Experiences music director. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to thank the people at Beam Centauri, especially um, Derek Baines, who's my local rep and handler for this for this event. I thank you for the opportunity. I thank you for not only the opportunity you've given me, but the platform that you've given some very talented uh, bartenders around the country. And also, um, I'm putting it out there. Beam Centauri has been very, also very supportive and have been talking about the revitalization of the Black Mixology Club, which was a turn of the century organization of Black mixologists based out of DC. Well, now we've seen the need to maybe organize some of these cats and help us help each other. So I'm really proud. I'm very proud. You know, I know I'm backing up on this. I've always been proud to to uh, compete. I've always competed with with a fierce edge on me. You know, like you know, like they say, you can roll with me. Get out of my way or I'm going to come through you. I'm going to come over you. Well, now I got to, it's almost like having a child. I'm doing this for my city. I got, I got the city of Houston. Some, I know a lot of people don't even know this is going on, but I'm taking it to where the city of Houston is dependent on me. You want to, to win this. To where Houston yeah. is known for That's right. crap cocktails. This, this is synonymous from, with from, from what i understand the first time on a national platform Man, that black that black mixologists have been highlighted well 
I want I wanted to be known that the best of the best are right here in Houston. Hell yeah. Um, Malachi, Bevan Biggers, or Bevan Biggers. Um, uh, the traveling cocktail. <clears throat> um, Cliff, uh, if I forget you guys' last name, don't hold it against me. Right. Cliff, Bash. Bash, um, that's, that's the godfather of uh, my podcast. I love Bash. Um, uh, man. That's cool, we got about two. I'm seeing your face. And I don't know why I can't come up with your name. I got about two minutes left. Okay. Uh, where can we go vote? How do we vote? Okay, the best way, because I know it's one of them links with like 500 freaking characters. So the easiest way to go vote is to go to blackrestaurantweeks.com. Okay. <clears throat> on, when you get to their homepage, there's a tab. If, you, it, in, on, if you're on a PC, the top of the page is a tab that says cocktail competitions. <clears throat> if you're on your phone, hit the little three-line menu bar, and it'll drop down and say cocktail competition. When you hit that, right now, it comes right up to the Rep Your City uh, screen. You can scroll down. We're at the very bottom, the west bracket, and before you get into the meat, it says right on the top of the bracket, it says vote. And if you hit that tab, it'll show you the four contest contestants in the West bracket. I'm the second one on that drop. Ed Warner. Ed Warner. I got on a red shirt. It looks like I'm pouring a drink. Uh, you can vote for me. We've created a mantra that says vote share repeat there you go so you can vote get all your friends to vote get your family members to vote train your dog to vote train your fish to vote and then do it and, twice and then do it again yes. just like just like your champ man no don't do it twice do it till your finger gets tired there you go all right we're all on our phones anyway yeah you contribute something anyway. Yeah. You're on your phone anyway. Contribute ain't something positive. On IG that you ain't seen. Right. Give me another vote. Yeah. Ain't nothing on Facebook you ain't seen. Give me another vote. You already bought everything you need. You know. Give me another vote. Give me another vote. Ed, it's you been know, a pleasure. We're running up on time. We can keep hey, doing man, this all day. No, oh, thank you, bro. Um, thank you. Houston is my city, and Houston is badass. Hell yeah. Thanks again to Ed Warner for driving all the way down to my hometown of Angleton, Texas to visit me at my home. He knows he's welcome back anytime. You can see here I'm catching Astros game or just talk poker all day, really. Also, I want to give a big thanks to everyone who's still checking out this episode. I always try to do my best to keep these under an hour, but also I just go with the flow. And if a conversation has momentum, I'm not going to be the one to stop it. What I can control is the length of this closing segment, so I'll keep it short. I appreciate everyone that supports what I'm trying to do. There are big things to come, and I want to share the ride with as many people as possible. I always hear, don't let people ride your wave, but I'm down with people still being able to see my wave, maybe while they're chilling on the beach. I'll be back again soon with my next guest, Jackie Moody, 
from Moody's Charcuteries. I promise I'll pronounce that correctly eventually. Until then, try to try your best to send out positive vibes. And I know from experience, I promise those vibes will be returned. Really, you should hit up that friend you haven't seen in six months. Order something from a local bakery and enjoy some cake and conversation.